Today on the podcast we have Ray Stone. Ray is a really interesting guy. He's an author, an athlete, a massive South Park fan, and he's been flying helicopters for the last 30 years. Ray has lots of great stories. Today we touch on just a couple of them. This is my second podcast, and I'm learning as I go. And as you will gather from the beginning, it really helps if you press record. We were everywhere. Yeah. That was awesome, wasn't it, AB? That's Did you? Can you believe what I've just told you? I can't believe it. No, it's, that's it's incredible. For you. And it'll never be told again. That's the <laughs> that's the funniest thing. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back. There you go. That's why I'm giving up flying. 1998, wasn't it? Yeah. We were in 1998, the 27th of December, South Care Base, um, Canberra. Canberra. First uh, day of three day shifts. Twenty uh, seventh, so the day after Boxing Day, it's going well. and a really, really rough day, <clears throat> weather-wise. Low pressure, strong winds, a massive cold front heading in from the west. Job to Vincentia, south of Sydney, to pick up a patient who'd fallen down an embankment. After the what, RPA, what time is that? Uh, shortly after turning up at work, so probably about eight thirty in the morning, almost straight away. Yeah. So we were. In Sydney, sort of late morning, stopped by uh, Kingston Smith, get fuel, and heading back uh, with the paramedics down the back, both air sick, breathing pure oxygen, and we got a call to go to a prang at Burrowa. Pretty much straight away, we got another call to, to ditch that, go back to Canberra, refuel, and fly to Malakuta to back up Helimid. Did they tell you why? Nope. Back up in, and this is a crucial point, back up in ambulance speak means go and render assistance immediately. Back up in aviation means go and stand by in case you're needed. Yeah. So the paramedics had one idea, we had a completely different idea. Um, at the same time, um, Care Flight was flying towards out towards Bathurst, and they rang up and said... Um, it's okay, South Care can go to Burrowa. Our case is not serious. We will divert and go to Malakuta. Because Care Flight had for years run a virtual protection racket in EMS in Trying to keep New everyone out of, out of Canberra. Um, and they had a long history of self-tasking. They would do the jobs that they wanted to do, and the, especially jobs that would lift their profile or maintain their profile. And they were told in no uncertain terms to continue on their mission when while we went. Well, you would have been closer to Malakuta, wouldn't you? Well, at that from at that stage, no, we just we both just departed Sydney. Ah, oh, okay. So we yeah. we were still en route and yeah. only early en route. Mm. Um, the Careflight pilot tried to argue with Comsim, but was basically shut down. So we went to Canberra, landed shut down. <clears throat> And I asked Delphi to refuel while I went and put in a flight plan. Um, Delphi was your crewman? That's my crew, crewman, I yeah. beg your pardon. I forgot that we had to backtrack. Mark Delphi was my crewman. While, after he refueled, and I was still organising, the doing the admin, I asked him to load, I said, jokingly, 
load the wet winching gear in case we have to do a water winch. But you still didn't. We know still what had no idea what we're going to Malakuta wow. for. Comsen had given us no additional information. So I had a flight plan in for Malakuta. The aircraft was filled up. We had a couple of grab boxes on board with winching gear. So we took off and we had just departed Canberra and Comsen came up and said, you are to divert to Marimbula. If you need to refuel, then you are to pr- proceed to the, the following coordinates. The coordinates, when they gave them to us, we plotted them and they're about 65 miles out over the water. So we landed at uh, Marimbula and because it, it was the urgency had now been stepped up, we hot refueled the aircraft, which means refueling without shutting down. I looked over my shoulder during the hot refuel and I could see the two young female paramedics in the back, down to their underwear, getting into their wetsuits. That was the last time I set eyes on them until about three hours later. At the same time, unknown to me, my crewman was out searching the the hangars at um, Marimbula, trying to find someone who could lend him a life vest because he had not packed the grab box that had the switlicks, the life vests, for the paramedics. And you didn't know this, and he didn't tell you? It was I did not know this until three days later, but let's not jump ahead. So not only did they not have switlicks, there were no fins, no masks, and no winching helmet. They had all been left behind. No one breathed a word. So we chuffed off. Were the girls in the back very experienced? They had done... They'd been on the helicopter since October. So about two months. So we started in, in on the 1st of October. So what about the have they been experienced in like winching? Their water winch training was done in Lake Burley Griffin. And I went down to watch from the shore and it was on a day when the lake was like a mirror. So you could see all the trees upside down in the reflection. Hmm. It was flat as glass. And they were doing their winch training just out in Yarralumla Bay. So we headed out from uh Marimbula. It's blown probably twenty, thirty knots at Marimbula. The seas were probably two or three metres. And the further we went, the bigger the seas got and the stronger the wind got until we arrived at our lat long. There was a ship in the distance and we saw a a yacht. I got a feeling it might have been Kingara. But we we thought we'd been discussing on the way how we're going to approach the winch if we had to winch. If the... If the rigging was still up, we are going to have to do a long line. If, the, if it was dismasted, it would make it a lot easier. So not a long line, a tag line. So uh, what's the procedure with winching? Um, hover, over the, hover over the target, which the pilot cannot see. So it's all down to the winch operator to what we call con the aircraft, give steering commands. A, um, an electric winch is used to lower a cable with the... Um, paramedic attached to a hook on the end of it down to the survivor put a strop over them and once they're secure winch them back up into the aircraft so um, it was 
there was no other way that we were going to recover anybody in those conditions. It had to be a winch. The vessel that we flew over, with that we first found, was underway, heading back towards the coast. As we came around an orbit, about two miles to the north, I could see the landing light of a helicopter. So I said, oh, that might be them over there. We flew to the north for a few minutes, because we had the wind up the tail, so we had nearly 200 knots over the over the ground. And what would be normal? Uh, well, there's still air... The still air speed of the Bell 412 at that altitude would be probably 115 knots. Right, so, so you're travelling. We we were, it was like being fast forward. So we got to the area and were sure you, enough... Were you scared? No. No. Not at all? Why? Not nervous, not apprehensive? Not at that stage. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, we found... The light belonged to Helimed 1, which is the Belfort 2 out of La Trobe Valley, flown by a pilot I knew quite well, crewed by a crewman I knew quite well, and the, the paramedic on board was a paramedic I'd, I knew quite well, worked with a few times. We arrived and went into a ride orbit around this vessel. The vessel they were winching to was the offshore stand aside. It had been dismasted and most of the superstructure on the top had been torn away, so it was an open boat. There when we got there there were probably four, five, six, seven, maybe seven left on board. Peter Lee, who's a pilot of um, the other aircraft, I when I said uh yeah, we can pitch in now if you're finished. He said, I'm just getting the hang of this. <laughs> so we orbited while they took on a total of eight of the crew from offshore stand aside, leaving four behind. Lee's approach to winching um, was to drop the paramedic in the water maybe 20 or 30 metres downwind of the target which in this case was a raft that was being streamed off the back of the yacht and then drag the paramedics through the water to the raft it may have been because he did not have a lot of overwater winching experience I was very lucky in that my first few years of Molly engine operations were offshore and I'd been schooled by some ex-navy pilots including Graham Rorschein who gave me the magic, the magic process of winching over water? And if I was to tell you, I'd have to kill you. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I already know it. Maybe. Yeah. In which case, you can't divulge. No. <clears throat> so I learnt from Graham Rorschein that it doesn't matter how strong the current is or how strong the wind is blowing, patches of foam on the water don't move. And you can use patches of foam as a, as a stationary hover cue. And the fact that they dissipate, they're ephemeral, doesn't matter because as one dissipates, you just jump onto another one. Makes it makes it very, very easy. The technique they were using was very, very hard on the paramedic. So because they were doing a lot of swimming. Well, he's just being dragged bodily through the water. Yeah. You know, 10, 15 knots. Yeah. And he's getting smashed. Mm. 
you know, you're looking at waves up to 30 metres. Um, while we were orbiting uh, with the door open in the back and, and Mark Delft down the back with the girls because he climbed over to prepare for the winching, he was a 20-year Navy veteran. He's going, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And Michelle, in her inimitable style, said, could you shut the fuck up, Delphi? You're frightening us. And he said, I've never seen waves this big in 20 years in the in the Navy, which is awesome encouragement for these yeah. two young women. Given that they're brand new at it. Yeah. When Peter Lee had eight of the survivors on board, he couldn't take any more. They, had, they did not have any more room left in the, in the aircraft. So they started heading off for Malacuta. And just prior to his leaving... I was looking at the, the remaining guys on board thinking, I don't want to do this. I do not want to be responsible for the lives of these people. If I fuck up, they're dead. I'm not I'm not prepared to take that responsibility. It was terrifying. As soon as he as soon as Peter left, I could not wait to get down there. I mean this is stuff that I knew in an aircraft that I've been flying for um, nearly 10 years. So you were terrified, but you were until looking forward to it? No. Until he left? While we were watching and doing nothing, it was terrifying. Mm. Once it came down to actually doing something, mm. it was something like, else let's, let's go and yeah, let's go and do it. Yeah. So, I don't know if that's my enthusiasm was shared by the other people. So, we flew down, took up a position... Delphi was down the back, hanging out the right door. The seascape is sort of rising up through the windscreen and then the waves charge past underneath and the horizon's gone. Um, so what do you think the wave height would have been? Well, it's estimated up to 100 feet. But it mostly around probably 10, 20 metres. They were coming through in different in sets. Every yeah. now and then a big one would come through. Yeah. There are a few occasions where... I had to physically climb Fine. to get out of the, the way. But that means the boat was going from 100 feet below us to to 80 feet below us. Mm. So Christy was the first one out. As a paramedic, you know, when she got down to the job, um, she was incredible. She had absolute focus and was totally unflappable. Remember that all these girls had now were wetsuits, and their brand new aviation helmets. No fins, no mask, no winch helmet, which probably saved Michelle's life, no. and no sweat licks. Yeah. So the survivors were had come off, two of them had come off the, the yacht, swam out to the, or pulled themselves out to the raft, got on the raft, so the two in the raft. Michelle, uh, sorry, Christy went down. The first thing that happened was the raft got blown over. So everybody's in the water and Christy's underwater. And Delphi's saying, she's still underwater, she's still underwater. Anyway, she popped up and by now one of the guys had been thrown out of the raft was being washed away. So she went after him. She got to him, put the strop so over she's him. she's swimming after him without fins. Yeah, with a, with a winch cable attached. With in a hundred foot ocean yeah. with a cable attached to the back of it. Yeah, but, I mean, you make it sound really difficult, but, you know. The first one, I reckon, took us five minutes. 
Poor Chrissy came up, and she was absolutely exhausted. Another guy swam out, so there's still two guys in the in the raft, and Chrissy went down again. The same thing happened. the The raft got toppled, blown over. Chrissy went under, and when she came up, she had the cable around her neck. The cable that she's attached to. The t- cable that's see she's attached to at one end, and a 4,000 odd kilo aircraft with two jet engines is attached to at the other with the sea going up and down the wind blowing about 65-70 knots so Delphi's shouting at me don't climb Christy untangled herself gave a thumbs up up she came she came up with the second one on board and she said she, she tapped out she said I can't do anymore so now it was Michelle's turn. Michelle, you know, youngish woman, I think we had her 30th birthday while just after we arrived. Two young children. Looking down at two survivors left on this boat and if we if we didn't get on, get them off that vessel, they were dead. There's no way known that they were going to survive in an open boat going on for it's about two, two, maybe three hours to dark. There's no other aircraft out there. And they've been there... Like for a day already? No, no, they've only they've been there for a few hours. Okay. Because as soon as they got dismasted, and at this time, at this stage, because we've got um, radar receiver in the aircraft that picks up uh, rescue beacons. By now, there are multiple rescue beacons going off. The Winston Churchill, which eventually sank, and I think um, some of the crew were lost from that, was was nearby, and he was calling a mayday that he was sinking. We were halfway through our rescue, so Michelle went down and she started preparing to put the strop over one guy, and the other guy came came up to her. Actually, I think they'd gone in the water. They had Michelle had the the, the raft had blown over. They're in the water, and the raft came up again. And as it came over, the great big steel compressed CO2 cylinder that inflates the raft hit her in the head. She said all she could see was black and stars. Because wow. she's underwater, wow. she's just been brained. That'd be like 20 kilos in the head, more. Oh, yeah. Um, it would have, if she'd had the normal winch helmet on, which are only very thin and only very scantily padded, she probably would have been knocked unconscious. No sweat, like she would have, she would have died. She would, mm. We would have lost her. Mm. When she came up, some of these might be out of sequence, um, but That's these okay. are all the events that happened. Yeah. When she came up, she had the the painter, the tether from the raft to the yacht, wrapped around the winch cable. Oh, so you're yeah. attached to a raft now. Now we started. We, we started. She had the she had the guy in the um, in the strop before the raft hit her. Uh, that guy, as she was preparing to to fit him on, into the strop, the other guy come up and said, "Leave him, take me. I can't hang on any longer." And she had to tell this guy, "Don't worry, we'll we'll come I'll, back for I'll you. be back. Yeah, I'll, I'll be back." <laughs> so when Michelle gave the signal to winch up, it started winching in. The raft started coming up with them. So she 
got Delphi to put it back down. And she thought, they're going to cut me off. They're going to cut me away. They're going to cu cut the cable and I'll never be seen again. That, that's the end of me. We'd already looked at it and decided that we weren't leaving her behind. If we had to drag the raft into the aircraft with it, we were still going to get her back. But she didn't know that. So she took out her J-knife. It's a little tiny plastic knife used for cutting webbing. And she had no idea whether it would work or not. And she started slicing through the painter and said, it's like a hot knife through butter. So she cut cut the the raft away. Amazing. And it skipped off downwind. I saw it going with about 70 knots behind it, just flew, skipping from wave top to wave top. Just gone in an instant. Wow. So Michelle came up and there's one guy left in the water. He's actually back on the boat. The raft was gone, and we got number three on board, and Michelle said, do I have to do it again? And Delphi said, you have to just, one more time, just one more time. So Delphi indicated to the guy on left on the yacht to jump overboard because the raft was gone. So he tied a rope around his waist, jumped in, and we put Michelle straight down on top of that guy. He untied himself, had the strop on, and his back up. It took about a minute. The raft was the worst thing that that yeah. we had to deal with. Yeah. It was a complete waste. Yeah. So it's all fine and beauty in the calm sea. Yeah, but uh, when it's continually to be overthrowing people out of the out of the raft as I say some of this might be a little bit mixed up I, I didn't do any homework before I came here but all of these events um, happened during the it's during the these four it's retrievals it's a great story um, so what's your fuel like at this stage we're getting skinny on fuel and some genius had said had set up the the police command post I guess you'd call it Malakuta, where there was no fuel, because Helimed had been the first aircraft to respond, and Malakuta was the closest Victorian airfield to the border. So we flew down to Malakuta and landed, shut down. Helimed was already there, and the four survivors got out and walked off. No, thank you. Nothing. Really? <laughs> Not a word. What? They're probably just so shocked. Yeah, yeah. I think so. They couldn't even. No, I, I think they. I think they were just so happy. Yeah. To be away from where they were and mm. been. Mm. But when Michelle got out, a Red Cross person ran over to her with a blanket because they thought she was one of the survivors. Okay. We damaged the winch cable. When the raft got. Tangled um, around the the um, the painter from well, sorry when the when the painter got tangled around the winch line. The um, painter's the line that inflates the, the raft. No, the, no, that's a lanyard. Okay. Um, no, the painter you call it a painter. It's a tether, whatever. Right. Um, it attaches the raft to the to the vessel. When when it fouled and we started pulling up, got caught by the wind and dragged the winch cable out. And my crewman unbeknownst to me, got dragged out of the aircraft with it. 
because he was holding on to it as the as the fleet angle. It's called the fleet angle mm. increased. I didn't know. He was hanging outside the aircraft at the end of his tether, at the end of his monkey line, still and he attached. was still and still attached and still conning me, saying go, go left, go left, go left. Oh no, so go right, go right, go right, to get me back over the the raft. raft. And that's amazing. And I didn't even know he was outside the aircraft. And right, and so then he had to. Christy, Christy jumped over to the door and helped drag him back in. And that was because he was holding the cable yeah. and the rafts pulled And the, the, the raft has the raft has come up, it's been caught by the wind, it's dragged it out, and he's gone with it. So, you know, credit where credit's due. Yeah, um, definitely. And I, I didn't even know until we're flying back and he's he's working his shoulder and I said, yeah, what's the matter? He said, oh, I got dragged out of the aircraft. I said, oh, bullshit. I said, yeah, <laughs> all the way out. Anyway, we landed at, went up to shut down at Malakuta. We had a damaged winch cable. There were beacons going up everywhere. and No fuel. No fuel. And I was desperate to get back out. Because I'd been sitting up the front. I was warm, dry. Had a sweat leak on. There's no, you know, no real drama for me. Um, Michelle said, I'm never fucking getting back on board another fucking helicopter as long as I fucking will live. Mm. I don't blame her. And when I said, come on guys, there's still people out there, they rebelled. Mm. Duffy said, no, winch cable's damaged, you can't go. So I said, you know, at least we can get out there and look. First we had to get fuel, so we had to fly up to uh, Marimbula. It's only 20, 30 miles, but we had so much wind up the tail. We were doing like between 180 200 knots over the ground. And I got to uh, Marimbula with one of the low, fly, low fuel lights on. So that's what I was saying about what I can do rather than what I should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, I've been flying the 4 and 2 and, and knew that, you know, you get to... But it's extraordinary circumstances as well. Well, I, I knew that given the, given the ground speed, you know, we were going to be there in, in half the time it would normally take. Just working on 100 pounds every eight minutes, I, I'd calculated the fuel that we'd get there with, with about, you know, I don't know, 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, probably closer to 10. But when we got there, Delph got out and went to the fuel, refueler and said, see that green and red helicopter over there? Make sure you refuel that one last. Because they didn't want to go back out. Yeah. So... Well, the reason we're talking about this is because we've just gone the 20-year anniversary. Yeah. So your recall on it is amazing. Well, I've just written a, I've just written a book. Yeah. That's in inverted commas for anybody who can't see. And in going back over it, I mean, a lot of it is still very vivid, and I don't need to refresh it. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the smaller details, I was able to get from the. Um, Board of Inquiry transcripts. Anybody can read on the on the internet. Yeah. Well, it was the largest, or the yeah, the largest maritime rescue in Australian history. Absolutely. S- still today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fifty-five, I think, winched eventually. Six died. Yeah. But that was just that was the first day. And the Queen came out to your home, didn't she? No. For dinner? No. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> she was going to, but um, I had something on. So you were busy. 
uh, and I forgot to tell her. I was really embarrassing. So she turned up with the retinue. We're not home. I had to call her up and say, Liz, I'm really sorry. Liz. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're like that. It's very... The, the issue of the Queen visiting is very, very ironic because the Victorian team were fated and went to meet the the titular head of the Australian, you know, the Commonwealth at the same time that Delphi and I were fighting off uh, the threat of disciplinary action. For no life jackets. For no life jackets. And Mm. unfortunately Delphi, and I didn't find out until the first night shift when the superintendent came out. So I did three days on the rescue First night shift, the superintendent came out and asked the girls... So hang on a minute, you've just done a um, pretty intense rescue event, mm-hmm. and you you stayed on shift? Well... What, what time of the day is this that you've gotten back and you said... Don't we, um, what happens is the shift ended at 6, so at about around 6, 6.30... A fixed wing turned up with a night crew on board. We jumped in the bug smasher and flew back to Canberra. And this is where. Did you did you see the manuscript? Oh, you did. Um, this is where Michelle's saying how the cloudscape looked like Care Bear Land. It's probably one of the funniest things I've ever heard after what we just done. It's talking about Care Bear World. But we went back down to Marineville next day, seven o'clock in the morning. So you went home, had a sleep, came back on shift the next day and went back down there? Yep. Um, we were doing search patterns. I mean, the the organisation was... It was chaos. Mm. Care flight had turned up, trying to lord it over everybody. The Navy had turned up and the the view was, oh, thank goodness the professionals are here, but, you know, we'd done... We'd already done... We'd taken 12 between us um, overnight. That South Care had taken another 10, I think. They winched at night. No, no, in okay. early first light. Yeah. They went out to Midnight Express, I think, after it rolled. Right. But you can't winch at night. No. Although the Navy guys did, but there was a rumour going around that the crewmen, the rescue crewmen, refused to go down. So they just sent the strop down by itself, and one of the survivors was so cold-soaked that when he got in the strop and they started pulling him up, he fell back out. Mm. Don't know if it's true or not, but there are all kinds of rumours flying around. Yeah. We went up, and my Delphi had, Delphi had just gone on leave at the end of that first shift. Right. So I had George, George Casey. Right. Do you know George? Yeah. Um, we're flying along, and there are still beacons going off everywhere, and we saw a vessel. And it had been dismasted. It was trailing a sail in the, in the water. So we flew over, and it... Again, Christy and Michelle turned up at 7 o'clock in the morning to go back on shift, this time with proper equipment. And we we tracked the beacon to this boat called Business Post Nyad. And when we flew over it, there's a guy lying in the cockpit in, a, in red, you know, the, um, the red survival suit. And... As we flew over, either Christy or Michelle said, he just waved. So we rang back. They had an air commander overhead about 10,000 feet relaying radio. 
So we relayed to, to him that we'd found this boat and we're going to winch the paramedic down to it. They said, what's the name of the boat? And so we're flying close enough. It said, business first Nyad. And they came back and said, don't bother, that, that individual's deceased and there's another dead person down below. And <laughs> flying around, just flew over a couple of times to make sure. And then we set off to pick up our search pattern. And either Christy or Michelle said, I could swear I saw him wave. And I said, it must have been his ghost. And I looked at George, you know, for some wry smile or something, and he was as white as a sheep. Mm. <laughs> like he'd just seen a ghost. Mm. So... So you left him there. Yeah. So when we got back, and this is another thing I don't think ever came out, but if you read my best-selling book, Worst Things Happen at Sea, you can, you can delve into this. Where do I get a copy of that? Um, Amazon, when I f- finally get it, smashed in shape because I tried to get it published last year but no one was interested so I just gave up on it but oh I'll probably do a rewrite and self-publish so you got a couple of books on Amazon haven't you oh you you could say that Big Sky R.C. Stone Fantastic Read Mm. Elegance about new species of human so when we got back we could take days to tell us all about them yeah well, I mean, if you ever have me back. Is it rattling, is it? Yeah. <laughs> what? Am I There's, tapping the table? You're rewriting the elegance yeah. book. Yeah. Because of well, recent developments. Yeah, we talked about that before the incident. Yeah, the incident mm. that no one will... We will never speak of. No. Because no one will hear it anyway. Um, so anyway, we got back. And again... you know. I sort of find some things funny where other people wouldn't, but we flew back to refuel. And while I was refueling, Michelle went over to one of the other paramedic crews who was with another aircraft to ask about the dead person that we'd flown over on Business Post Nyad. She went over to ask them how it felt being winched down to that aircraft. And they said, we didn't go down. And she said, well, who who pronounced those two people dead? Mm. Did any practitioners lay hands on them? And the paramedic said, no, no, the crew told us they were dead. And she was absolutely ropeable because no medical professional had confirmed these guys were deceased. And she said it's easily possible for someone who's not trained to mistake a person who is in deep hypothermia for being dead. Yeah, they've got a depressed respiration, they've got a very low pulse. Um, and in the heat of the moment, if you're not a trained professional, it's very, very easy to say he's dead when he's not. Mm. So she was very, very pissed off. But you still didn't go back? Well, no, because we went we back. self-task? No. Because we went back out and we were about 30, 40 miles out over the water and I got a, a uh, fuel valve warning light, meaning the fuel valve was in transit. And I'm a twin engine aircraft, but we didn't have any floats. And a fuel valve shutting shuts the engine down. Mm. The engine didn't shut down, but the light stayed on, which meant 
that the valve had motored and then stopped. So I've got your support checklist and we went through it, did everything we could do, and I couldn't cycle it because it had shut the engine down. So I said, what are we going to do? I said, nothing. Let's just go back. Yeah. So we went back and Buck Latley, you know, the, the engineer. 212, 412 guru, was dispatched from bushfires and came up and he finally tracked it down to the um, the fire T-handles because, of course, pulling the T-handle, among other things, shuts the fuel valve. And it was so corroded that some stray electrons had leaked out and gone down the circuit and partially motored the fuel valve without actually closing it. So by th- yeah. So by the time it was fixed, um, they said, oh, i just fly back to Canberra. So we, we flew back to Canberra. So the next day, third day, they said, get back down. We went back down, but there's, it's all over by then. And yeah, in I fact, you, you suggested that if I could write it like I tell it, it'd make a good book, but uh, unfortunately it didn't work out. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know people can go through their careers and not experience stuff like that, and they don't realise how difficult it could be that you could be called on tomorrow for something like that. It was not, from the point of view, from where I was sitting, it was not a difficult mm. job. Yeah, let's fast forward a couple of years. Oh, jeez, now you're you you started out on a thing called a streak, and that's not running around with your clothes off. Oh, isn't it? No. Well, that's what I did. No. Isn't that what I was supposed to do? Well, probably would have been funnier. Yeah, it would have. Um, what, what made you do that? Well, in... Well, hang on a minute. Just two, what is a streak? In 2009, um, I was in Essendon, and Tim McNamara, our mutual acquaintance, who's a crazy man anyway, said, Oh, Ray, I tell you, I'm doing a streak. I said, What, running with no clothes on? He said, no, no, running every day for a year. So I said, oh, that sounds pretty good. So in probably May, I thought I'm going to I'm going to start I'm going to run every day for a year. So I started running, and I've been running on I've been running for a long time since 1978. What's the criteria? The, the mutually agreed on criteria is was a minimum of a mile, which is 1.6 yep. kilometers every day. Every day. Hmm. For a year, so I set off, and I, I had a really, I have, well, I used to have a really dodgy right knee due to a motorcycle accident in 1973. It had no patella, no kneecap, so my geometry was all out of whack. Left knee was also distorted because it had been taking more than its fair share of the weight. Are you saying you didn't have the best of running styles? Oh, it was a fantastic running style. Do you reckon? It it went for. It went for hundreds of thousands of Ks. Got to day 35. And it was the 4th of June, and my daughter's birthday, in 2009. I always did my aircrew medical on the 4th of June because of the good luck component. And I went to my damey, did my Fair medical. Enough. He said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're 110% fit, his exact words. So to celebrate, I went and did... A run around Black Mountain. Really smashed it. It's a flat three Ks and a two K take two K climb up through CSI Row on the road, then onto the mountain and some really steep pitches. 
with a lot of long gentle declines sharp pitch up decline and I really smashed it 57 minutes and it's 11 Ks I think and it was my daughter's birthday dinner that so night so could you count that for 11 days nope one run is one run do you remember you we ran the th- day number 1000 yes so that was in the rain wasn't it yeah, I think it was. That evening, I was feeling a bit off colour, and I had a stitch. It wouldn't go away. And I went to Eliza's birthday dinner, couldn't eat any dinner, went home feeling really, really off with this stitch. He'd taken my lanter, and I just... I was living at Mum's place, curled up in front of the, the fire. I couldn't sleep all night. My then-girlfriend, Brenda, turned up, in the morning, I picked her up from the airport and she said, how are you going? And I said, I'm as sick as a dog. Went back to the doctor and he had a bit of a poke and a prod. He said, oh, look, you're not showing any of the classic signs, but it might be appendicitis. If it's not better soon, go to the hospital. I said, like, what, like a couple of days? He said, no, 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 by, the, by this afternoon. And I was trying to hang out till six o'clock so I could finish watching The Simpsons, but about half past five, asked Brenda to take me to the hospital. Anyway, they finally, after only about 20 minutes, they took me in. Temperature 41. They said, ah, oh, looks like you've got acute appendicitis. So he called the surgeon. This kid, about 15 years old, walked in. And he said, ah, oh, I'm the, I'm the on-call registrar, or it was. Hello, birds. He said, I'll just get the anaesthetist to to come past the anesthetist was about 14 and he just came in from the playground and he said oh I've got a trainee surgeon here would you mind if she came in and had a look so this girl of about 12 came in and she was she was trying to do an examination but she's just touching me I said you're going to have to push harder than that if you're going to feel it um, then they came and said oh look you're private insured do you want to wait till tomorrow get the surgeon of your choice said, no get it out so when they opened it up it had ruptured abdominal abdominal cavity was full of brown matter that mm. the surgeon said oh um, we in the medical professional call, profession call that poo <laughs> and I was in hospital for four or five days my left lung collapsed got out Brenda tried to kill me by leaving me at home alone with the thermostat turned up to about 40. Anyway, 23 days later, as soon as I could, I got back on my push bike and I was riding up around Black Mountain. So you've forgotten the streak at this stage. Oh, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. After 35 days. Hmm. But on the 28th of June 2009, I turned up in Warrnambool. Tim McNamara was there and Matt Spencer, the engineer. And Tim said, we're going for a run. We'll wait for you. So my first run was in Warrnambool, the 5K. I got back and there was some there was some plastic sticking out of the the appendix operation. Plastic? Plastic, like fishing line. Oh, okay. So, so I just stitches. pulled it out. <laughs> Nothing happened. And the next day I had off was when I came round to your place on about the 21st of August 2016. 
Right. So it's just over seven years of running every day. Seven. Uh, how many days is that? Well, it's 2,611. Um, the shortest runs, I had to do fall back on the one mile rule a couple of times. I had a hernia operation. I popped a hernia racing Grant Timms, the engineer, yeah. on Horn Island. Really good runner. And I was running with a seven kilo pack. And we were running on sand. And I got back and I thought, no, something doesn't feel right. And it was a hernia. So I went and got that repaired. But I still had to run. So the first two days after the hernia operation, we were both one-milers. And the first day, the first one, the day after the operation, just ran up the the path along the beach with my son walking beside me because he'd come down to help look after me. And turned around 800 metres and was shuffling back. And Richard Butterworth ran back. He said, you call that running? Yeah. But you wouldn't have had a clue what was going on. No. No. But anyway, I got a belt and used to run with a belt around okay. it to hold it all. To hold your hernia in. Yeah. The um not to make you feel bad, but I think there's a guy in America just retired from it. He did fifty two years. Yeah. That's amazing. But yeah. I wonder if he just did a mile. Who knows? I wanted to do ten years. Yeah. But I did um the 56k that you were my support yeah we watched you do on. that that was good yeah, was I liked watching that because that was um, for me watching you do that that guaranteed that I would never do it well um, I don't know I think you're just taking the piss but um, <laughs> I I had no idea until the time how important a good support crew was and I had to thank you for that but Unfortunately, I had a pair of shoes that were half a size too small. I ended up having to cut the toes out of them. But because I stuffed my shoes, I went to buy a new pair of shoes to this guy that everybody recommended, raved about. He didn't carry the shoes that I normally get. He sold me a pair of other shoes that never felt right. Mm. I was running with Jace Horder in Redcliffe in November. It was 24th November in 2015 and pinged my left Achilles. So I started running on my heel rather than, than than rolling through. And my left knee got really, really sore. So I started having to load up my right knee and it just blew up. And, you, and ended up and you in had a, it replaced? Ended up in totally replace it. Otherwise I would have kept Thanks going. Thanks for coming. Yeah. So three years short. Oh, it was better. Not than, even close. Better than anyone I know. Yeah. So yeah, that was my that was my street. It was one of the best things I've done. Well, why do you say that? Um, because running is a form of meditation that has other multiple benefits, such as being out, seeing the world, watching nature, running in places like Saigon at night, Hue in Vietnam on a misty morning, running on York Island, Horn Island, running in Thailand, 10 days running in Iceland, Sweden. Um, it was the best, one of the best things I've ever done. It was fantastic.
And also? I, um, a lifesaver, literally. A few things, as, as everybody experiences, you know, a few things happened in the course of those seven years that running was um, really a lifesaver. From the point of view of being able to meditate or yeah, help with stress or all of that. Yeah, form of meditation, an opportunity just to centre, and those lovely endorphins. I reckon I've kept you long enough. We've only just started. We have only just started. (laughs) That's the trouble. We could go on for hours. I hope you're gonna. I hope you're gonna edit this. I didn't. Ah, I forgot to press record. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) What a good conversation. Thanks, Ray. No problem. Brilliant. It's been great to have you here. See what you make of it.